Well, good morning. It is an awesome privilege to preach this morning. Some of you were probably double-checking your bulletins. What? Is that right? It's interesting. Um, this morning, I had one big dream, and that was I started the second week of November. I said, oh, wait a minute. You guys know about this, like, no-shave November. So I said, and Elder Bill is showing off right now because <laughs> I can't do that. I tried. I tried. I thought, I'm going to preach the last... Sunday of November, and I'm going to have a nice woolly man beard, like our brother right here, and it's going to be awesome because I'm going to be preaching about Moses, and I'm going to look just like Christian Bale in the new movie that's coming out. I'm going to have it going on, and it just didn't work. It did not work. This, I had this little scrawly, gnarly-looking thing going on, and I just had to shave it, um, and I had to admit, like, you know what? I'm not as big as man as uh, our pastoral interns. <laughs> uh, Charles McKnight, Paul Major, they put me to shame. <laughs> they can grow it easy. And then another revelation happened, and that was, wait a minute. Speaking of pastoral interns, this is literally the first time, not only have I ever preached at Christ Central, but the first time that I've had the privilege of preaching at my home church since I was a pastoral intern back in 2006, and I was a seminary student, and I was at Desiring God Community Church here in Charlotte. So it hit me, wow, this is an awesome privilege to preach at my home church. And so I'm very thankful to God. <clears throat> and uh, some of you may recall the time we were at the Neighborhood Theater, and I think it was the first time, at least it was the first time I recall being on the stage and leading liturgy when we did Blessed Assurance, and I wept because I could just think of growing up in Zion Hill Baptist Church and my grandfather uh, singing that song with his old rustic voice, and now he's in heaven, and he is singing that song, this is my story, this is my song praising my Savior all the day long. We long for that day, don't we? We long for that day. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, I had a communications professor, Dr. Kick. He is now passed away. He was an incredible professor and preacher. And he made this one comment to us all. He said, the congregation will remember more your illustrations than they do your exposition. So make sure you use good illustrations. <laughs> so I say that to say that I'm gonna take a few risks this morning and be a little bit vulnerable and maybe a little indulgent and tell you a little bit more of my story. As I see it and hear it, every time I read the second chapter of Exodus, and I see a couple of uh, smiles, maybe. Maybe I'm looking too much into it from the Snyders because this was actually the last thing that I spoke to them when I was their youth director about four years ago before becoming an elder. And it's amazing how it all comes together. Whenever you have a guest preacher do what I'm about to do, 
and that is say, I'm gonna pray one more time, it's to get over the jitters. So I'm gonna do that. And if you can join with me. Father, I do pray, make me decrease, let you increase. Help us all to hear, me especially. Help us all to know that you are near. Speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I remember back then when I was giving that talk on this very passage, and of course the only reference that I had or the best reference I had was the Prince of Egypt, right? Uh, the Prince of Egypt, but now there's a new one in town, and um, I think it's December 17th, something like that, Christian Bale, Batman starring uh, Batman as Moses. You guys know what I'm talking about? The ex- Exodus, the movie, and I'm going to see it, right? And it's high-intensity, action-packed. I think it's like produced by Ridley Scott or something. It looks intense. I plan to see it. But of course, always the question, whenever you see a movie, you always compare it to the book, Say, all right, what are they going to do? What are they going to brutalize? What are they going to mess up? Uh, We kind of come in with those expectations, right? Whenever we see a movie that's based on a book, and even more so as we get into this story, because this is not just any story, and this is not just any book, but this is God's book, and we just pray that they don't brutalize it like they did the Noah movie. So I think it's important for us to pay close attention to the story and to read it carefully. So whenever we see the movie or if we see the movie or if we talk with others and hear about it, we could say, whoa, 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 wait. This is what really happened. And this is why it happened. And this is what God was doing. And so if you're the note-taking type, as I've reflected on this passage, I've just considered God's calling on the life of Moses. Note this, God calls who he wants, where he wants, when he wants, why he wants, for whatever he wants. Looking again in Exodus chapter two, verses one through 10, it says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. We know it's going on, right? The people of Israel are under extreme persecution. The Egyptians are taking the firstborn sons and killing them. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, an act of sure faith and hope. God, please spare this child. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And I always pause right here and think, wow, because I've read this story, I've heard this story, I know this story. What's about to happen? His sister is watching to see what will happen. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. 
make you think here, right? This had to be planned. This is, we know when the Pharaoh's daughter comes to this spot by the river. And maybe, just maybe, we can push the basket right when she is coming. And maybe, just maybe, she will have compassion on this child. Because her own father is the one who has set out the decree. Kill every firstborn son. Kill every son. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She, put, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? Look at this plot. What's happening here? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, Moses' own mother. More remarkable. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And I stopped there and think, wait, how old was he? Did he know who he was? His mother knew who he was. His sister knew who he was. His adopted mother knew who he was. They all knew that he was a Hebrew child spared from death taken into the arms of the Pharaoh's daughter and into her household. And it, all we see here is that when the child grew older, which we can assume that this is when the child was weaned. And all commentators say is that maximum age, four years old. And it just makes me reflect as he was named Moses because he was drawn out of the water did he know? Did he know his identity? I start thinking about myself, and uh, identity is something that I wrestled with a lot as a child. Not sure about you, uh, but as a child, for me, I, it just seemed like nothing was congruent all the way up until I was at least 15 years old. I mean, my mother lived in San Diego, single mom. My dad wasn't present. My grandparents essentially took me in at four years old in South Central Los Angeles. And the differences between the two places of San Diego and Los Angeles could not be more stark. Because in San Diego with my mom, the atmosphere was pristine. The environment externally was really nice. But there was lots of turmoil in the house. My mom was struggling. There were oftentimes she could not pay the bills. I remember coming home to the lights being off multiple times. Uh, we were on welfare. There was lots of trouble in that household. But then when I went to go live with my grandparents, so both my mom grandparents from my mom's side, 
my grandfather and my grandmother. Upstairs, literally, it's my aunt and my uncle. I had cousins, I had a whole house. My grandparents also had foster children, so I had brothers. So I was no longer a single child, but I was a child amongst many, and I had this entire family, and it was safe there. Though outside, in the 80s, in South Central Los Angeles, was a war zone. I lie to you not, I kid you not, the things that are on television were not embellished. I walked to school, to the bus stop, every single day, and every single day, there was yellow tape. Every single night, there was the ghetto bird up atop. Every single night, we heard gunshots. Every single day, it was a war zone outside. But inside, it was safe. And I would live my childhood going back and forth between my grandparents' house, my mom's house, and it was that same sort of thing. Go to your grandparents' house, it's safe inside, very unsafe outside. Go to my mom's house, very pretty and pristine outside, not so stable inside. Live in San Diego, mostly white and Latino friends and all of them looking at me and asking, why was my hair not straight like theirs? Go to my grandparents' house, mostly African-American community, some Latino friends as well, and mostly getting picked on for being light-skinned. I struggled with my identity. Who am I? What am I really here for? What am I about? Who defines me and who I am? And then I went to uh, college later on at the University of California at Berkeley, and that didn't make things much easier. <laughs> I uh, was engulfed in a politically heightened ethnocentric environment, and I gravitated towards its luxuries of being in that school and its vices of being in its environment. But that's me. Back to Moses. Verses 11 through 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian built, beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Pause again. Wait a minute. Something's up, right? It seems to be that he knows. We don't know how he knows, but he knows that he's Hebrew. Here he is taken from his mother, put into the household of royalty at a very young age, and somehow, some way, he knows that's my people. Those people out there, those are my people. Amazing. I remember growing up and listening a lot to hip hop, a lot of hip hop, and uh, Karis One said in the song, You Must Learn, he said this about Moses. He said, He was raised by the Pharaoh's grandson, or excuse me, he was raised as the Pharaoh's grandson, so he had to look just like them. I take a little bit of issue with that. I say, oh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's how he knew. Maybe just as growing up, there was just enough physical features that he said, You know what? I don't quite look Egyptian. I look more like them than I look like them. Maybe, maybe his adopted mother gave him clues, told him, you know that I pulled you up out of the water and that's why your name is Moses, correct? 
maybe, you know, other people, maybe his own grandfather said, Moses, you are part of this household, but you would never be able to be king because you are not Egyptian. Maybe, all these maybes come to mind, but what we do know is that he looked out and he saw what was happening to the Hebrews and he said, this isn't right. That's my people. And it continues and he says, when he saw this Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, he looked one way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Wow. See, here he is intervening and thinking, I've got to do something. I've got to, maybe God called me here for a purpose. Maybe this is the reason why I'm in this household. And this is the reason why right now I must intervene. I see injustice. I will take it on. I see, few, I see my, my brother's feuding. I will jump in the middle. And he's instantly rejected. Instantly rejected. What was he called? What names was he called? You half free, you outcasts, you, you're not one of us. Well, who made you a judge and a prince over us? It's, I'm thinking, man, you say that to the prince of Egypt, that's bold, right? That's real bold. But this complete rejection, you don't have authority. You don't even have our respect, Moses. Do you, and this is interesting as it continues, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. See what's happened at this new epic of his life? Here he was raised in royalty. I mean, if you had asked Moses at any point in time prior to this event, what are you going to do when you grow up? He would have Napoleon dynamited him. Whatever the flip I want. He was royalty. Absolute royalty. But then he gets a little bold and decides on his own will that he would take initiative and that he would intervene in this injustice and he's rejected. What now? What now? An exiled former prince of Egypt. Remember when I was at Cal, I got a, a wake up call my sophomore year. This is the longer, more indulgent part. My freshman year in college, I kind of lived this dual lifestyle and I played it off, got away with it in many cases. Freshman year, I was on the party scene Monday through Saturday, but you could sure enough see me Sunday at church and Wednesday at Campus Crusade. And that was just this dualistic lifestyle I lived. 
But then by sophomore year, I wasn't living that anymore, especially after a major event happened. Within one week, these four events happened. Number one, I had a, a cousin, it's my same age, I was 20 years old, I had two cousins actually that lived in Sacramento. Sacramento is about a half an hour away from Berkeley and every other weekend either I would go there and go hit up the party scene in Sacramento or they'd come to Cal and I'd show them the college scene, right? One day I get a call, hey, uh, this is from my cousin Ronnie, we're not gonna be able to come down this weekend, Andy is sick. Okay, you can be all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just having some issues. Not sure exactly what's going on, but we'll get out there. All right, cool. Another week goes by. Hey, we we're going to come out this weekend, but Andy actually had to go back to the hospital. They're fearing like maybe pneumonia, something. I'm like, oh, dang. All right, well, just get back at me. Hey, man, um, probably not this weekend, but the next weekend for sure, because Andy's getting out the hospital this weekend. Um, but they're saying, you know, maybe his issue is diabetes. I'm like, dang, all right, I'm gonna have to see my cousin taking insulin. This is hard. So I remember it like it was yesterday. I was at home with my roommates playing video games on a, playing Madden football on a Sunday morning, which was, you can, things have changed for me at this point, right? I'm not in church. I'm playing Madden. Phone rings. Hey, it's your cousin Ronnie. Hey, Ronnie, what's going on, man? I'm playing, playing. He says, um, what you up to? I said, just chilling. What you up to? I said, oh, wait, hey, y'all picking up Andy today, right? He said, yeah, that's what I was calling you about. I was like, what's up? We lost him this morning. What? what do you mean we lost him this morning? And the short of the story is, is that he had a blood clot in his leg and they didn't detect it. And my family was literally on the way to come pick him up and he collapsed on the bed and died. That happened. I'm at my family's house in Sacramento, me attempting to be the only spiritual uh, fortitude there, and I get a call from my mom. My mother says, uh, hey, I know this is bad timing, but I wanted you to know that your grandmother had a heart attack. We think she's gonna be okay, but just thought you should know. Um, just for you to know, my mom and my grandmother planned on being here today. Uh, that was many years ago. I was 97. My grandmother has been having a little bit of health problems, so she can't travel today. But that happened. Then I get back to school, and I had a professor tell me that I could not make up a midterm, though I was the pallbearer at my cousin's funeral, because that would be unfair to the other students. I'm talking about anger rising in someone. So I decided to go to work. I had a little student um, on campus job and decided to go to work and just get back to regular stuff. And I checked my email. I read through a line. I said, what? And I clicked on it. And it was a really good friend from high school who told me she had cancer. But at this point, I'm done with God. I'm just being honest. At that point then, I decided, you know what, God? If you're there, you clearly don't care about me. So I don't care about you. And I resolved at that moment to have nothing to do with him. 
And that resolution uh, would lead to me making some very bad decisions and finding myself in some very hard places. Uh, even being arrested in a student protest. Student protest I didn't even know existed prior to me going there. It was just whatever I could do to rebel, to fight, to get out this extra angst that I had. And that same summer, my mom, she said, I, I need you to come home. I just need you to come home. Just come home for the summer. I said, fine. I came home for the summer. And she's in my ear. And she could tell something has changed in you because you were raised in the church. You know the Bible. You know the word. You know God. But where, what's going on? And she could tell by my language and my body language that something was dramatically different. And you know what? At the end of it, I said, all right. After three days of fighting, combating, I had been fighting enough stuff back at school. I was literally still fighting a court case. I said, you know what? All right, fine. I'll go to your Bible study. I'll do that thing. Just leave me alone. And so I did. And something incredible happened. And to this day, and if my mom was here today, I would say it. She's heard me tell it a multitude of times. I still have no idea exactly what was said that evening at that Bible study that I felt like I had no business being in. I mean, there was literally three shut-in women and myself, my mom leading it, in the book of Revelation. <laughs> a 96-year-old woman um, who was just not very mobile, a middle daughter who was taking care of her, and her own daughter who was dying of MS. And me, book of Revelation, and my mom. Uh, didn't want to be there. But this is what happened, and you know, sign of the times, uh, the leather-bound thing that I had was a Bible, so I'm using this as illustration, right? It was just this simple act, just opening the Bible, and it was almost like hearing the whisper of God. I've always been here. Where are you? And I broke that evening. I mean, I utterly broke. I went home that night, I opened up the scripture, I started reading more, and I started praying, and I broke, I broke, and the floodgates opened up. And I repented that night, I said, okay, Lord, do with me whatever you want. Do with me whatever you want. And within a matter of days, I decided I'm not going back to Berkeley, I'll die there spiritually. Decided to uh, transfer to UNC Charlotte, it was the only school that still had an ongoing enrollment process. And so I went there thinking this is just temporary because I got big and great things I want to be a part of. I'll go and be a part of, I'll go to Chapel Hill after my first year. And uh, I ended up getting involved with the campus ministry. And a man by the name of Neil Gooch started investing his life in me. And this ministry started surrounding me and Christian community became more important to me than anything else. So I decided to stay. And I even decided to stay for grad school, mainly for the purpose of getting more ministry experience because by that point I determined I was gonna go on staff of campus ministry and occupationally for the rest of my life, I was determined I would serve God vocationally. I was on a fast track actually, it seemed, uh, after that, the next Two years after graduating from grad school, uh, I was on staff, and then I started exploring this idea of becoming a church planter, of doing this sort of thing more regularly. I said, all right, 
let's do this, Lord. And um, I had my pastor invite me to come on staff. So I left staff with the campus ministry, came on staff of my church, was in seminary, thinking, Lord, this is what you've called me to. And then something else happened, or a big reality hit, and that was um, I hated my job. My job was primarily administrative, and those of you who know me know that I am primarily social. So being put you know, in a cubicle, if you will, and making my job mainly uh, writing curriculum on top of my studies, which was mainly sitting and studying and reading, I found myself depressed, detached from my job, detached from my church, and needing a way out. And uh, my wife was the one who suggested that we find an adjunct office. So we decided upon the Dunkin' Donuts on North Tryon, right over there by the car dealerships, and right across the street from there, as I would do my work and as I would get interrupted regularly by people, which I loved, um, I would see the students coming out from this little school across the street, Crosswords Charter High School. I decided then, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to ask them if they need any tutoring help because uh, that's what I did in college. So I went over there, asked them if they wanted any help. They said, sure. And they then put me a part of this program called Character Helps Achieve Triumph Chat. I had a bunch of students who had no desire to hear from this old guy, it seemed. But uh, we started getting some engagement. It was fun. And then I got a call from the principal. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. The principal called me in and he said, we'd like to know if you want a job. Hmm, that's interesting. I hate my current job. Sure, I'll take a part-time temporary job that's only guaranteed for two months. I'll finish up my last semester in seminary and had no idea that I would never go back and had no idea that I would be in those same walls for the next six years. From a part-time teacher to a teacher to even being hired as an administrator, loving teaching, to then becoming a Google App Certified Instructor, kind of touring the country, speaking on using technology in the classroom, taking on another job at Trinity Episcopal School, teaching. So if you ask me at that point, what is your job? What is your vocation? What do you see yourself doing for the rest of your life? Clearly, teaching. But the Lord always has different plans or bigger plans, I should say. Listen to this resignation, something that resonated with me about Moses in verses 16 through 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the trust to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content 
to dwell. Moses was content to dwell there with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and she called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Commentators state that he would dwell there for the next 40 years. So if you would have asked Moses before, who are you? Maybe he would have said in a Hebrew, but what will you do for the rest of your life? I'm royalty. What do you mean? This is what I'll do for the rest of my life. I'll rule. And then he had this inclination to lead a rebellion and it failed. And here we see he has resigned completely retired to the hills. You ask Moses during any part of this life, time of his life, so what is it that you do? He would say, I'm a shepherd of my father's sheep. I'm a husband of my wife's Zipporah. I'm a father of my children. This is who I am. Don't you want to do anything else? This is where I live. But what about this is who I am? It's not the end of the story. We know that. Verses 23 through 24, after some time, and Moses has been resigned and retired in the hills, God was shaping this man, and he didn't even know it. God was making this man, and he wasn't even aware. God was designing a plan, and Moses was just living life. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And I can just hear, right? And God knew. And you know what happens next. What happens next? This same man who was called out in the hills and resigned to this new reality of just being a family man, shepherding his father's flock, would be called up into some, something much, much greater, right? Much greater. And when these things happen in our lives, I think it's important for us to pay attention. Again, taking a little bit of liberties, but also wanting to be very careful in doing so. I'm not Moses. I just remember not too long ago, and I'm gonna share more about this next week during the announcements, but I got a call, literally an email from a friend concerning a ministry opportunity. And I wasn't looking for it, wasn't expecting it. And uh, it was a friend by the name of Chris Knight. My wife discipled his wife and she was in our wedding and he and I held, still hold each other accountable in various areas and just a good friend for the last 12 years. And uh, he said in the email, essentially, hey D, I know that you're teaching and all, 
just wanted you to know about this position. It is for a lead position of a startup nonprofit that incorporates ministry and technology. And if you have the time, I would love for you to look over it, pass it on to others. But really, I'm sending it to you because I think it's something you, you should consider. What? I mean, not thinking about this at all. Not at all. I mean, I'm literally helping another school at the time get started so that could be my next job. And I am not looking for a ministry opportunity ever again. I mean, not outside of fulfilling my, my duties and role here at Christ Central Church. You ask me, what is it that I do? I'm an educator. You ask me what I'm good at. I'm good at technology and technology integration in the classroom. So what are you called to do? I'm called to do that and to live my life as I am called to live it with my wife and with my kids in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then I get this email and it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating. I read it over. It's a ministry to men, utilizing technology, involving a mobile application. I specialize in mobile apps. And just having this, oh man, moment, like, I have to look at this. I have to read it. I have to at least consider it. And I had no idea that the Lord would be calling me to that. And so that's my job. And it's a good thing. But when I reflect back and think about the life of Moses and consider, what was God doing to that man in the hills? What was he doing? I mean, he took this man who we know was pretty prideful and arrogant. He was so arrogant, he thought, I'm going to lead a rebellion single-handedly. And he failed. When God calls him, he's shaking in his boots and says, you got to have the wrong guy. God made this man humble. What else was he doing? He made him a shepherd. Interesting. And what would be his calling as he would go back to Egypt and lead God's people out? Where would those people then travel for those next 40 years, wandering in the wilderness? That very land, Midian. God was doing something grander than him the entire time. It's amazing. But it's also bigger than that. You look at verse 25 when it says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's almost this panning out. It is this bigger reality. There's something bigger going on and there always has been. God saw his people And God knew. Everything that we know about what happens next should cause us to press the pause button here and just simply reflect. It was never ultimately about Moses, was it? Upon further reflection, we know that it isn't just about God's people either, but God himself It was God who would set up this scenario where his people would be rescued from the famine back in Joseph's day, as Pastor Howard just led us through. It was God who would set this situation up where the people, his people, would be placed in the land of Goshen under another Pharaoh's rule, who would be good then. 
And now this new Pharaoh, who, who knew nothing of Joseph and had no respect for these people, would then aim to kill them and persecute them. It was God who would cause this epic clash of gods. The true God versus the likenesses of Ra, the God of the sun. Remember what God did to the sun? Isis, the God of magic. Your sorcerers versus God and his anointed one and his staff. Shu, the God of the air, the very air that God would send locusts swarming through. Nephthys, the goddess of the, of the Nile, the same Nile that God, the true God, would turn into blood. And Pharaoh himself, who would call himself deity, the same one who God said, I will make him stubborn and I will break him. It's always about God. We know that God is a jealous God and he will never give his glory to another. And finally, we see in the images from Moses and his life that he was more than simply a vessel for God to use, but a pointer to our Savior himself. Consider Moses, born in royalty, Jesus coming from royalty to our land born in a time of persecution against the Hebrew sons from the Egyptians, rejected by the very ones that he came to rescue, sat down by a well, but our savior offered her water of eternal life. Spent many years learning a terrain that God would use to lead his people through. Jesus literally from heaven to earth and becoming acquainted with all that we are acquainted with. This Moses who was called in dramatic fashion, the deep voice we imagine coming from a burning bush, Jesus declared at his baptism for all to hear with booming voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and the burning brightness shining forth from the sky. For what purpose? Jesus set out to emancipate his people from the sorrows of their slavery. This is who we worship. This is who we look at. This is who we talk about. This is who we treasure. This is our God, our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for giving us all stories.